Like, whoa. Yeah. Are you inspired? I'm inspired. Awesome. That's all you get. I mean, happy new year. First day back. Let's go. Like, wah, wah. Oh, well, hey. Welcome to another potentially useful episode of the TCAP Sloop podcast. Danielle and I are very excited to share a conversation we had with the founder and chief curriculum architect of Bootstrap, Emmanuel Shanzer. But before we do, let us rigorously double-check our calculations when postulating this week's TCAP's Loop Moment of Zen. The test of real and vigorous thinking, the thinking which ascertains truths instead of dreaming dreams, is successful application to practice. To start, tell us about yourself. Sure. So my name is Manuel Shanzer. Um, I am a former public school math teacher. Um, and also a former computer science major. So I went off to college, double majored in computer science and education at uh, Cornell University in upstate New York. I worked at Microsoft for some time uh, in their common language runtime team. So it turned into a product called .NET. So if you've heard of .NET, that was part of it. But you know, my, my focus at the time was very much around programming languages. And I knew I wanted to be a teacher eventually. Uh, I wound up um, cutting short the get rich in in tech scheme and decided to just jump into teaching because it was a lot more fun than like sitting around at a tech company. And so very quickly, what I realized was that as a math teacher, you know, my kids were really struggling with algebra. And so, you know, I thought, well, gee, I understood algebraic functions a lot better when I started taking programming classes, especially a particular kind of programming class. And I thought, well, I'm sure I'm not the first you know, idiot to think that programming and math have a connection. Let me go and explore what's out there. And what I was shocked to see was that there's a lot out there and none of it has any evidence of being effective. And so I was curious about that and started digging into the history of math and computing education because they go back to Seymour Papert and Logo in 1960. And I wanted to understand why, you know, especially around algebra, programming consistently fails to improve student performance in math. And because my background is in programming languages, I had a little bit of expertise that I could use in my search. And the theory that I came up with was that, gosh, we keep using programming languages that are anti-math in order to teach math. And like, maybe we should not do that. And Larry, I see your face. You're, you're like, how can a programming language be anti-math? <laughs> Larry, do you have, uh, have you ever done any, any programming before? I'm in my 50s, so... Back in the day, we did some very basic programming, but that's primarily it, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, what was the programming you were doing back in the day? Oh, just basic. Just basic. Just basic. Right. Yeah. So, so in basic, right, you can write X equals 2, and then on the next line, you can write X equals X plus 1, right? And you run your program, and, and Larry, what's the final value of X once I've run that program? In, in, this is why I'm not good at math. <laughs> X. Isn't that the most common statement from somebody, though? Oh, no, no. Well, this is the thing. This has nothing to do with math. So mm-hmm. not that math doesn't hurt you at all. And mm-hmm. being good at math doesn't help you either. In basic, if I say x equals 2, and on the very next line, I say x equals x plus 1, when I run that code, the final value of x is 3. And in basic, you call x a variable. Right? And, and that is true even for modern programming languages. I can give you the exact same example in a language like Java or Scratch 
or you know Python or C++ or whatever. Here's the problem. In math class, if a kid writes x equals x plus 1 on the board, that's just wrong. Right? x cannot be equal to itself plus 1. If you subtract x on both sides, you get 0 equals 1. And this is just one example. I could give you a million more. But this is an example of a really big problem because as a math teacher, if a kid walks into my class in, in seventh grade and says, I know what a variable is. I've been programming for since I was in kindergarten. That doesn't make me happy. That makes me think I need to go look up. Is there an IEP for this kid learned programming and therefore has like a learning problem with mathematics now because programming screwed them up? Here's another simple example. In Java, one divided by three is zero. Feel free to test that yourself if you don't believe me. That is the God's honest truth. And I'm not going to go into why, other than to say, because Java, as powerful as it, as it is, does not actually have numbers. In fact, most languages don't have numbers. Um, so, you know, and when I say numbers, I mean like math numbers, numbers that actually behave according to the laws of math. Most programming languages don't have them. They don't even come close. One divided by three is not zero. It should not be zero. And yet it is. So we have numbers that aren't numbers, variables that aren't variables. Functions don't get me started, right? Like vertical line test, schmertical line test. Most programming languages have like a buttload of functions that have a domain but no range. So all of this is to say that the vast majority of programming languages, especially the ones we use in K-12, behave in ways that are not just unsupportive of math, but directly hostile towards math. Because as a math teacher, I now have to fix all of the misconceptions that our kids have gotten about what a number or a variable is or a function, because programming does it wrong. It begs the question, why? Where, you know, and I don't want to bird walk too far away from here, but I'm just wondering where in the process of developing programming languages did we yeah. get so far away from? So the origins of computing have sort of two very different families. Like if you look at the family tree, there's a very different lineage on two sides. One side is the math side, right? This is where you get like Alonzo Church and church numerals and Turing machines, right? The theoretical computer science that existed long before we had computers. But then you get the engineer side of computer science, which is like the computer is a machine with like metal in it. And I'm going to flip these switches to represent bits, right? So one branch of the tree is highly abstract. The machine is like an implementation detail. Like who even cares? How much RAM does a Turing machine have? That, that question doesn't even make sense because Turing machines are abstract. Whereas from an engineering perspective, like I need to know how much memory I have at all times. I need to like, manage that memory. And so the problem is that the early days of computer science were very much driven by the machines, the metal. Now in math, the number line is infinite and continuous. It goes forever in both directions with no holes. Machines are finite. And so as a early programmer, right? You don't think about numbers because you don't have them. What you think about is I have eight bits or four bits to represent a value. If I go beyond that, too bad. There's just no value bigger than that. So you were very aware of the limitations of the machine. And then programming in straight machine language evolved into programming in assembly language, which was really just a thin covering over the ones and zeros we were using before. And then Grace Hopper invents the first compiler. And now we can write in slightly higher level languages. And 
the evolution of these languages is that we get higher and higher level. So gradually pulling away from the machine, but they've all inherited some of the limitations of that machine because at one point in history, you had to be very aware of those limitations. Like if you weren't, your code doesn't run. And also being aware of the metal allows you to write code that runs faster. You know, we've all heard these apocryphal stories of like, this old hacker from the 1960s who did this crazy thing, exploiting this little bit of memory and like it made the whole company work. And now they're a millionaire. Well, so knowing the machine really mattered. But as compilers have gotten smarter, these like cool tricks aren't really as useful anymore. That's not to say that it's, there aren't still places where it's valuable. But by and large, the need to think about the machine has disappeared or it's, it's in the process of disappearing. 30 years ago, everyone was upset that Java was, was telling programmers, you can't manage your own memory. We're going to manage it for you. And everyone freaked out. Garbage collection. How is it going to manage memory on its own? And now we just take it for granted that a lot of languages do their own memory management. That's why the evolution of languages has inherited all of these limitations that make them highly problematic if your learning goal is math. Please, I hope nobody listening says, I heard Emmanuel say he hates Java. I don't. Essentially, the argument I want to make is programming languages are nothing more than tools. There's no such thing as a best tool. You should always use the right tool for the job. So if your job is teaching for loops, your programming language had better have for loops. But if your job is teaching math, your programming language had better have some basic math components, like, I don't know, numbers. And most programming languages that we use with kids, ironically, don't. And so what I do and what bootstraps, you know, what my role is at Bootstrap is we love programming. We're all, you know, we love computer science, but we're not going to schools and telling teachers computer science is a virtue in and of itself. We're saying, look, computer science is a tool that might help you learn history or might help you learn math. But if we're going to make that argument, then at the end of the day, we better see math scores go up. We better see kids understand history better. If you don't do that, the teachers won't talk to you. They shouldn't talk to you. And the only way to make that right is at the very minimum to use a programming language that supports the learning goals of that teacher. We start with non-CS learning goals. That's our North Star. We want to help kids do better at X. And X can be physics. It can be social studies. It can be elementary math. But it's not computer science. We want to focus on the other 20 problems that no one talks about and talk about how computer science can be useful to them. So correct that you see data science being the vehicle to get teachers to the improvement in all of those areas. It's the improvement for many fields, not all, right? So our algebra materials, for example, do not use data science at all. They're very focused on word problems, functions, unit testing, things that map very directly to what a math teacher does in their classroom already. So from their perspective, it's like, oh, I... I used to use TI-84s, now I use Desmos. This computer is just another kind of calculator. It can do way more interesting things, but we don't want them to have to throw away their playbook. We want to build them. In other fields, though, so let's talk about history. If you open a history book, in your average American history textbook, every 12 to 16 pages, you're going to find a chart, a table, or a graph. History books are chock-a-block with data. And often, the way history is taught in a classroom is... I'm going to tell you the story, and I'm going to test you on the story. And if you don't believe the story, we'll hear some data to back it up. Actual historians, they do it the opposite way. All they have are 
letters between world leaders that were recently uncovered or, you know, results from an archaeological dig. All they have is data. And what a historian does is try to figure out what stories does this data tell us? And sometimes it tells us more than one. And we have to, like, figure out what's the most plausible. So historians, the job they do has a lot more in common with data science than a lot of people realize. And so a data science class that's targeted at history teachers would have students start with the charts, tables, and graphs. It wouldn't even show them the story. It would say, here's a spreadsheet full of things that were found right, uh, at an archaeological dig in Peru. Based on what was found at the dig site, what do you think we can infer about Incan civilization? Based on this spreadsheet of uh, real estate sales in Boston after the civil rights movement, what does this data tell us about the impact of redlining? You know, do we see evidence of racism in this data or not? And you let the kids interrogate the data. You let them come up with their own stories. And then you say, let okay. Let them build well, the narrative. Yeah. 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 And you say, okay, well, here's the story in the book. And sometimes the kids will say, aha, I knew it. Or sometimes they'll say, mm, I don't, I don't agree with that story. And they might say, well, my data doesn't show that. And then you can have this question. Well, maybe the people who wrote this book had access to more data, right? So maybe you're only seeing a piece of the puzzle. Or maybe the history book was written by somebody who was invested in telling a different story, right? And that's what it means to teach critical thinking, right? You're not telling kids, we're going to brainwash you so that you think a particular way, left or right. We're just going to teach you to ask for the data and try to figure out if the data supports what you're being told. So a lot of people think that this is like a political thing. It couldn't be less political. Anyone who cares about disinformation should want teachers to be teaching kids how to be critical of narratives based on data um, and cynics as well, right? Like, did uh, crime spike when immigration spiked? Well, gee, I don't know. We can argue about it or we can look at data and see what the data tells us. Same thing in science class. A good science teacher probably has their kids do a lot of experiments. And from those experiments, they probably record a lot of data in like a lab book or something. Well, okay, well, what if you're trying to teach kids about the formula for acceleration in a physics class? Chances are you have them do something where they roll a bowling ball down a ramp or whatever. Well, put that data into a computer have, and then ask the kids, you know, here's a scatter plot showing distance and time. What does that look like? Is it a straight line? Is it a curved line? Come up with a function that models that you think will go through those dots as close to the dots as possible. Is a function linear? Is it quadratic? Is it exponential? And then use that function to make a prediction. What if I make the ramp steeper? And kids are engaged in building models based on experimental data. Well, holy crap, that sounds a lot like real science. And it's not that different from what science teachers already do. That's the beauty of it. Everyone does stuff with data. But data science goes that extra mile where you say, well, let's build a model. Let's see if the data tells me a story, and I can use that story to predict what the next chapter is going to be. And that's scientific method. That's meaning-making in history and social studies. It also teaches kids, like I said, to be critical. I want a kid who looks at a data set on climate change, the first question out of their mouth, I want the kid to be like, why are we getting a data set funded by Greenpeace? Or why was this data set collected by ExxonMobil? It matters. And then they should say, okay, well, what about this redlining data set from Boston? Or this crime data set? You ask kids, do you think that this model of this bowling ball, do you think this is generalizable to everything or just bowling balls? What about a tennis ball? What about a block? All of these are good questions that support the learning goals that are already in the classroom. 
And so it's kind of a no-brainer to think, well, gee, data science has so many applications. I think a lot of the national conversation around data science right now is limited to, let's make a new course. We'll call it data science. We'll hire a data science teacher. And then somehow we will try to get as many kids as possible to sign up. I don't think that's a very smart strategy. It certainly didn't work for computer science, right? Like 15 years later, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars later, what did Code.org just publish? 5.8% of kids take a class. 5.8%. But that's not a failure. I don't know what is. And so maybe we shouldn't be borrowing the computer science playbook when we know we know where it goes. Let's use a different playbook for data science. Hey, it seems to fit everywhere. So let's see if there's any teachers that want to put it anywhere. And the solution at school A is different from school B, and that's okay. What successes have you had so far with Bootstrap in regards to that? You know, for, for our data science curriculum, we've got teachers across the country. So we've got elementary school teachers in New York City that are using our data science materials in their history class. We've got science teachers that are having kids look at experimental data, look at like climate data in an earth science class and draw conclusions, but then also be critical of those conclusions, right? You have to disclose your threats to validity. We've got math teachers who, I mean, this is the other crazy thing about the the national data science conversation. I feel like the national conversation has so many weird nonsense things in it. So here's a fun one. Look at the math standards that are addressed by all of the major data science providers, bootstrap included, by the way. They're all middle school standards, like pie charts, bar charts, histograms, box plots, Linear regression. And when I say linear regression, almost nobody teaches the algorithm for linear regression. What they really mean is line of best fit. Line of best fit is an eighth grade math standard. They don't talk about quadratics or any nonlinear functions. Overwhelmingly, the data science classes that we are right now shoving into high school and trying to give high school math credit are basically a programming class that has some middle school math in it. So from our perspective, we think that those materials would be beautifully integrated into middle school where those math teachers actually teach those standards. Like, why not? Why are we teaching them in middle school generally without context, right? It's fairly dry, mean, medium, mode. What if instead we gave them interesting data, like income in America, which is highly skewed, right? Like Jeff Bezos makes a gajillion dollars. Most of us make very little. And then you say, okay, the mean income in America is let's just say $100,000 per person or per family. And then ask the kids, does that seem right to you? And like, no, most people I mean, no, don't make 100 grand. Say, well, gee, maybe the mean isn't a good measure of center for a highly skewed data set. That's why we use the median. We should have that conversation in seventh grade because that's where a, kid, a lot of kids need to learn it. So in terms of our successes, yeah, we're putting this into middle school math where we think it belongs. And we're piloting right now in Massachusetts an Algebra 2-infused data science class that, guess what? Instead of line of best fit, you could have a parabola of best fit. And now all of a sudden, we're just we're explaining to kids, yeah, these, these functions matter. Why are we learning exponentials? I don't know, because that's how disease epidemics spread. That's how misinformation spreads online. That's why we're learning them. And suddenly it's interesting and engaging And once again, just like with, you know, Java numbers, one over three doesn't equal zero. If you use the right tool, you can support algebra two. You can support the learning goals that were already there instead of saying those learning goals are dumb. 
Algebra 2, no one needs them. Instead, we should do this other thing that's basically seventh grade math, but, you know, with a computer. So how does a general teacher get started with thinking like this? I mean, this is really a total mind shift. Let's say I teach that middle school history course, or I'm a fourth grade teacher. How do I get started making some of these changes in my classroom? My short answer, my heavily biased answer is go to bootstrapworld.org, right? I think this is where curriculum providers need to be, because I really do think it's unfair to tell a teacher who already busts their ass, like grading papers for 120 kids, um, who went to school to be a teacher, who has experience being a history teacher, and then tell them, you got to shift your mindset. You got to go and like find a data set, which by the way, is extremely hard. Coming up with like a high quality data set that's pedagogically appropriate is extremely hard. We find it takes at least 40 hours of our time just to get one data set ready for kids. That's why we have a whole library of them that we give away to teachers because making them do it themselves isn't fair. So I think as a teacher, really, you need to ask, like, look at your scope and sequence. Do you do a unit on the baby boom? You know, do you do a unit on ancient civilizations? Do you do a unit on how a bill becomes a law or the electoral college? Like, what do you cover? And then which one of those items might have some good data out there? And then you search and say, has anyone already done the hard part of preparing the data set for me and writing the lesson plan and the project and the rubric and the assessment for me? And I'm sure one of your listeners is one of those like one in a million teachers who will just build it themselves. And whoever you are, go for it. Like, in fact, give me a call. Maybe we want to hire you. But for most teachers out there who are busy and need sleep at night, my advice is make your needs known. Shout it from the rooftops because, man, is there a lot of money funding data science education right now, like a stupid amount of money. And almost none of it is being spent on integrated data science. But if teachers stand up and say, here's what we actually need, you're way more likely to get it. What kind of hurdles have you run into when working with districts? Probably the biggest hurdle is people with really good intentions around computing education, but not a lot of background knowledge. Right. So there's a lot of people who are like, I hear you're supposed to teach kids Python now. So I want to make sure you're teaching Python. Right. And that's not anybody's fault. Like, yes, a lot of people want kids to learn Python. That is a very popular language, especially in data science, machine learning and so on. So like, that's not a bad thing. But often the hurdle for us when we walk to districts is like, no, we don't teach Python because we don't think it's appropriate for the learning goals in your teacher's classrooms. We can point you to other districts that use our material, and you can talk to happy teachers who will tell you that they don't spend a lot of time teaching the tool because the tool acts like the math kids have been learning for years. It acts like the math they already have to learn to graduate. So the tool gets taught quickly, and then you focus on the math or the history or the physics that you wanted to focus on. The downside is like what you give up is you got to teach a language that maybe isn't going to give a kid a job. So that's our biggest challenge. When we actually get to work directly with teachers, things are a lot easier. So once we get in the door, once we run the workshop, you know, all of us on our team are former teachers. So our our PDs are completely hands-on. We say, look, teachers, we know there's some stuff that is new to you here, so we're not going to make any assumptions. In fact, we're going to model this PD as if you're students. So you don't have to know any of the answers. We're going to show you what it's going to look like in a classroom. If we have an activity that your kids have to do, you're going to do it. And then we're going to talk about it. 
know, we're going to hear from you. How would you, this work for your students, for your students? How would you differentiate this for struggling learners, advanced learners, ELL learners? And we've got, you know, a teaching core of master teachers around the country who are in the classroom. That's how we run our PD. And teachers feel really good about it because we speak their language. And then at Bootstrap, we also don't want to just peace out after the PD. So we have, a, we have coaching sessions year-round that teachers can attend if they need support. We have a teacher success team that if we haven't heard from a teacher that we trained, we'll call that teacher on the phone and say, I know you're busy. Please tell me, are you alive? How is your class going? Do you have questions? Because we really want teachers to be successful. I think the tech industry completely misunderstands what scale looks like in education. Google has convinced everyone that you've got to go big right away. How do you get to, you know, 500,000 teachers in the first year? That's not what scale looks like in education. What scale looks like in education is if you give a teacher something that, that they feel works for them, that teacher is going to use that thing in their classroom every damn year until they retire or die, whichever comes last, right? Like, we all know those teachers. The, the school district has implemented a new curriculum, new books. Don't do that anymore. And if there's a teacher that believes in that other thing, as soon as they close the door, all right, kids, we're breaking out the old books. We're doing this. That is the ultimate truth right there. You yeah, just nailed so, it. So if you give a teacher something that they care about, they're going to use it every year until they die. Let's go deep. Let's go slow. Let's win the hearts and minds. A hundred teachers at a time. Because if 99 of them keep teaching it every year, by the time the buzzer is up, we're going to have impacted way more kids. So how is artificial intelligence changing everything that you do? It's funny. It's not changing all that much, if I'm honest. And I don't think that's because we're not taking it seriously. In fact, I would say we have some of, one of the deepest benches in terms of you know, computer science background, machine learning, and AI. But a lot of people ask, right? They're like, oh my God, maybe we won't even need to teach math anymore because chat GPT will just like do it for you. And I think to understand why a lot of people are freaked out by AI and feel like they have to like turn everything upside down and to understand why we don't feel that way, you need to understand the difference between what I call deep assessment and cheap assessment. So if you go back 50 years and look at a classroom, kids are not getting quizzed every week. That is a relatively new phenomenon. And it's this push for like high accountability. And again, it comes from well-meaning folks, right? Like if any superintendents are watching, we get it. You want to get data very quickly every week to find out how students are so that if a kid falls behind, bam, you can like address the issue. We get it. Problem is it takes time for teachers to grade assessments. And so if you make a teacher, if you make an English teacher read a hundred essays every week, guess what? They're going to have to take shortcuts, right? Who says that the best essay has five paragraphs? Who said that was a good idea? Why not a four paragraph? Why not a six paragraph? But instead we take shortcuts. We're going to teach one style of essay. We're going to look for a topic sentence and a transition sentence. And frankly, I don't even need to read the paper anymore. I can just find the pattern and grade a kid, which humans are smart. We're going to do that. If you make us do a million grades every week, we're going to start giving shallower and cheaper assessments. Now, the problem is when the assessments are shallow and cheap, kids who are good pattern matchers will stop learning. They'll just regurgitate the pattern. I know I was one of those kids. I didn't understand a damn thing in most classes, but man, did I sound good. And so teachers gave me A's. Now, the problem is, you know who's a really good pattern matcher? ChatGPT. So we've crossed this Rubicon where any assessment 
that is cheap enough that a teacher can actually grade it quickly is also cheap enough that ChatGPT will ace it quickly. And so the fact that everyone's acting as if the sky is falling suggests to me that cheap assessment has metastasized and spread throughout the education system. I think of cheap assessment as a cancer. ChatGPT is not the devil. It's radiation. It's chemo. For folks that, that already use deep assessment, ChatGPT is not as much of a game changer. So I think ChatGPT will actually motivate better, deeper instruction and assessment. Here's a classic example. Word problems, okay? ChatGPT can solve a lot of word problems because most word problems in a book are just dumb patterns. So what does a math teacher do? Do I have to throw them away a book? No, you don't. Here's what you do. Instead of asking the kid to solve the word problem, instead, give the kid three different solutions to that word problem that some AI created. Ask them to grade the solutions. Or better yet, tell them that they're going to see those solutions. You don't show them yet. But say, you need to come up with some test cases. Right? So here's a word problem. Sally sells lemonade for $1.50 a glass. It costs her 30 cents for sugar, lemons, and ice for each glass. Right? Find the relationship between the number of glasses she sells and how much profit she makes at the end of the day. Classic word problem. You could have a kid solve that. They may or may not be able to do that without even understanding. But here's how you twist it. You say, okay, I asked ChatGPT to solve this. I'm not going to show you its answer yet. What I want you to do is come up with some tests. How will you know if it got the answer right? Well, if she sells one glass, it better be $1.20 in profit. And if she sells two glasses, it better be $2.40 in profit. You say, okay, that's cool. Are there any other interesting points you want to try? What about zero? Maybe it messes up on zero. Asking kids how to verify someone else's solution requires a much deeper understanding of the problem than asking them to come up with a solution themselves. And so some teachers have been doing this for decades, but instead of saying chat GPT wrote it, they'll say, oh, some kid from my period two class came up with this wild solution. I don't trust it. I need you guys to come up with some ways to verify whether their solution is right. So chat GPT just replaces that kid from period two with an AI that is often right, but frequently enough is wrong that we shouldn't test it. So verification allows you to not sweat AI and doesn't even require you to throw away your math book or your history book. What we need to do to address AI is focus on, we're still going to teach problem solving the same way we always do. We're going to do it deeply. But then we're going to ask kids, okay, suppose this AI came up with a solution that it's wrong. Now I want to find out, why do you think it made the mistake? Was its training data lacking in some way? If it made this mistake, what other mistakes do you think it's likely to make? Right? These are really interesting questions that get at some of the fundamentals of AI. So for us, AI is not something that requires us to throw out the book. Instead, it just points us in the direction of some new chapters that we need to write. And we're writing. We're going to have some lessons out within the next 12 months. It seems like a game changer specifically for what you're doing as somebody who's promoting critical thinking within the curriculum that you're developing. AI is not replacing critical thinking. It's actually shining a light on the importance of it. Exactly. That's the thing, right? Like, if you're a teacher who hates having to grade 10,000 quizzes per year, and as a result, you kind of feel like you're giving crappier quizzes because the good ones you don't have time to grade, don't be scared of AI. Be thrilled. Go to your principal and say, look, if I keep giving these quizzes, kids are just going to use ChatGPT. The only way 
to protect our children from like cheating with ChatGPT is I guess we're just going to have to give deeper assessments, which is what I've been wanting to do anyway for the last 10 years. I think a lot of the fear around this is misplaced. This is so much more engaging for kids. I mean, as a traditional student, math wasn't my strong suit because it was never made this exciting and this interesting. So I can see kids that aren't normally comfortable in a math class being like, whoa, I, I get this. That critical thinking piece is just really brings in a lot of kids. Look, Algebra 2 needs data science to make it apply. And data science needs Algebra 2 because guess what? If you want to be a professional data scientist, you know what you need? Lots of nonlinear models. Because when you look at a scatter plot, most of the interesting relationships are not a straight line. You want kids to be good data scientists? Make sure they take Algebra 2. Oh, logarithms. They're so abstract. Well, okay, what if you ask an interesting question? You ask the kids, do you think that the more you make, the better your health is? Right? Kids are going to be like, yeah, probably. So, all right, here's a scatter plot, or an empty scatter plot. We want you to draw the line. Do you think that like every dollar you make, you live an extra minute? Is it like you live a lot longer once you stop being homeless? But then like after you've made your first million dollars, the second million doesn't really help you live that much longer. Like you have to draw the line that you think represents the link between poverty and lifespan. Guess what? None of those lines are straight. And then you pull out a data set, which exists, which we have on our website for free, which compares 190 countries, their median lifespan to their per capita GDP. And guess what? The data looks an awful lot like a logarithmic curve. Now you've just justified why logarithms matter. And you want to find the line of best fit. Well, gee golly, you can't because it's a logarithm. And the line of best fit is only linear. If only there was a way to make that data look linear. Oh, wait a second. I can undo a logarithm by transforming the x-axis via an exponential. Right? So now, instead of comparing it to per capita GDP, you do an exponential transformation in order to make the plots look linear. Then you fit your linear regression, your line of best fit. And now you want to undo the transformation. Right? This is where inverse functions come in. So that takes your, line, your optimal line and bends it back to be the optimal log. And so all of a sudden, we've just linked exponentials, logarithms, and inverse functions to something extremely relevant, especially to kids. This is not hard to do. And you can rinse and repeat this for periodic functions, right? I'm guessing the zebra mussels that are uh, an invasive species up in Michigan, I'm, I'm guessing that like most life forms, they have periods of bloom, you know, where they bloom and they die off. Like there's a lot of stuff that algebra two and data science are made for each other. Without nonlinear functions, you're not going into physics or engineering. You're not going into biology. You're not going into astronomy or earth science, all of which use nonlinear functions. What's held data science back from being part of your Algebra 2 course thus far? Yeah, well, this gets back to tools because professional data scientists use a lot of different tools, but the big ones are probably Python and R. I used R when I was getting my doctorate, you know, studying the link between computing and math. These are powerful, heavy-duty languages. They do not behave the way math behaves at all. So... It's not like you can lean on prior knowledge to get kids started, right? You, you just have to start from scratch. There's a, a very high startup cost to using these tools in another class. Now, if you just say, well, we're going to have a whole year-long class called data science, and all they have to do is learn data science, well, then, yeah, that startup cost might be high, but you have a whole year. 
So amortized over the year, it's not that bad. But if you're telling an Algebra 2 teacher, and it's not like they have you know three weeks just empty on their scope and sequence, that's a week you've just stolen where they weren't learning any math. All they were learning was programming. That's the obstacle. The tools are not made to be integrated. Using the right tool fixes that. And then after that, you have to provide the activities and the data sets. So, hey, Algebra 2 teacher, you teach quadratics? Great. Every kid is wondering, now that gas is $6 a gallon or a million dollars a gallon, they want to know if there's like a best speed where you get the best mileage. We have that data set for you. Here's your quadratic function project. You're welcome. And then that is the other big barrier, making sure that teachers have materials that fit what they need to do. There's too much chicken little going on. Look at your learning goals in your classroom and let that be your North Star. Don't feel like you have to keep jumping. You're the expert in what you teach. So like, don't freak out. AI doesn't mean you throw away everything you do. Stick to the the material that matters. Um, That's what we've always done. We're a five-person team, um, six-person team now, I guess. Um, And we've been fairly successful by not constantly chasing the trends. So you've mentioned that all of this curriculum, all these data sets are available on bootstrapworld.org for teachers for free. What else can they find there that would be useful for them? Sure. I mean, so all of our stuff is free, right? So, you know, if you paid your taxes, thank you so much. Congratulations. Because the NSF, National Science Foundation, has funded the core of, all, you know, the majority of the research behind this stuff for us. And so that's why we make it available for free. So you will find all of our data science materials as well as the data sets. And you can use our data sets with anything. So if you're, if you're in that full year class and you're using R or Python, we invite you to come steal our data sets. We would love it. You'll also find our algebra materials. So if you are a, you know, an 8th, ninth, or 10th grade math teacher who's really trying to get kids to understand functions and word problems, you've got our, our materials for that. Uh, our physics materials for ninth grade, uh, this is non-calculus physics. We have a whole modeling curriculum that we built in association with the American Modeling Teachers Association and American Association of Physics Teachers. That's free online as well. We are piloting our materials for Algebra 2 and for early math. So that's grades, let's say, 5 through 7, roughly. And, of course, we've got our uh, history materials that we've developed in partnership with the KIPP Charter Schools um, in New York City. There's a lot of free stuff there. And if you want access to the pilot materials, just send us an email, contact at bootstrapworld.org. You'll find lesson plans, homework assignments, student workbooks, rubrics, standards alignment to everything from NGSS to Common Core to CSTA. And if you're not in a Common Core state, that's okay. We have alignments to your states too. A glossary for English language learners, right? Of all the key vocabulary, slide decks for every lesson. These are interactive slide decks for those of you who know what Pear Deck is. And we're providing all these for free, not because we want you to read this like a script. We hope that some teachers will take those slide decks and completely rip them apart and make them their own. But what we want to do is give you something to start from. We try to offer like a soup to nuts experience. And if you want to get trained, contact at bootstrapworld.org. We run PD around the country. We're coming back to Michigan this summer. Keep an eye out for it. I think, in fact, we're going to be in Michigan twice. Um, And there's some discussion about having us train both on data science and algebra too. So there's a lot going on for y'all. Do you have any other questions, Danielle? Uh, No, I just want to say thank you specifically. I know we shared out the Hour of Data Reducing Vehicle Wildlife Collisions one for our teachers for Hour of Code. And the day that I sent it out was like the day after my teaching partner hit a deer with his car. So he he was like, this is perfect for Michigan. That's amazing. Perfect. Emmanuel, where can they find you? If somebody had a question, uh, 
Where can they find you online? By far, the best way to get in touch with us is if, if you're at the district level, just write to contact at bootstrapworld.org. But if you're a teacher and you have specific teacher questions, you can also write to that email address. But we have a discourse discussion community. So just discourse.bootstrapworld.org. If you post a question there, it'll reach me as well as everyone else, as well as hundreds of teachers around the country. And so I bet for a lot of teachers that are listening to this, you might have a question about Bootstrap, but you don't want to ask me because I'm probably going to tell you that Bootstrap is good. What you want to do is talk to another teacher and ask them, can my kids do this? And that's where you'll get those answers. But of course, contact at bootstrapworld.org, that will reach me as well. And we want our teachers to be successful and not chase those trends either. Well, thank you for your time. We really appreciate you being on the pod. This is super informative and really very entertaining. And I think we're going to take a lot of that information with us and feel a lot better about some of the conversations we've had the last couple of weeks. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Oh, that was fun. Whoa, right? I would follow him anywhere. Do you hear the things that he's saying, Larry, about like critical thinking and do what really matters and focus on the learning goals. Like that is everything that we believe, right? Especially the, those data sets, because you do want things that kids can dive into and think about deeply. So I, I'm really intrigued about the early learning ones that you said are coming for fifth through eighth. You're giving them a tool. You're giving them a resource that they otherwise wouldn't have. Go, Hey, where can they find you, Danielle? At Rostrum DA on LinkedIn is probably the best place. Perfect. TCAP Sloop can be found on LinkedIn, Facebook, the artist formerly known as Twitter and Instagram. Rate, review, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Cast. I should have taken a breath. Podbean, CastBox, Overcast, Bullhorn, or wherever else you get your ear candy. Thanks for listening and inspiring. There we go. That's impressive.